my name is Elise Neville. This is Wrestling Before God, episode number four, Witnesses. Wrestling Before God is the podcast where an average member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, me, discusses how I wrestle with some of the biggest questions I have in the scriptures for this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. All right, first things first. Several of you reached out to me and let me know that I made a mistake in last week's podcast about Oliver Cowdery. That's a shocker. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there are several mistakes, but thank you so much for letting me know. You guys, I need you to tell me when I make errors. I really appreciate it. So as a correction, Joseph Smith began the practice of polygamy in 1835, not 1935, and he started publicizing the practice in 1840, not 1940. Mistakes like that are going to happen, and especially when history is involved. You'll find corrections in that week's show notes for anything that I do, so make sure that you check those, and please continue to send me any feedback you have. All right, I'm skipping ahead this week so we can be ahead of the discussion instead of behind it. So today's Come Follow Me lesson is sections 14 through 17. And let me just say that I am so sad to have missed last week and the week before. I'd meant to discuss the priesthood, but instead I want to refer you to two podcasts that do a fantastic job of it, much, much better than I would have done. The first is the Priesthood Restored, a Joseph Smith Papers podcast. You can find this series in on iTunes and the Gospel Library app, and I cannot recommend this series highly enough. It is full of historical gems, and I found it deeply moving, particularly when it gets to the section on the priesthood ban. There is just so much valuable information in there. The second podcast I found really great was the Scripture Study Project, episode 162. In this episode, they speak to their daughter, who's asking questions about when she will get to pass the sacrament, and I felt they did such a beautiful job addressing some of the concerns that we encounter regarding women in the priesthood. Okay, let's get into sections 14 through 17. Sections 14, 15, and 16 are three separate revelations to three of the Whitmer brothers. And then section 17 is a revelation that preceded the three witnesses experience of viewing the plates. Today's going to be a little different because I didn't actually have very specific questions regarding this section, but I did want a better understanding of the historical context. So I'll talk about that today. And then just a few of my thoughts on the sections themselves. So let's talk about the Whitmer family. Peter Whitmer was the patriarch of the Whitmer family. He was born in Pennsylvania to parents who'd immigrated from Europe. The sources I was able to find indicated that his father came from Germany and his mother was from France. He married Mary Whitmer, who also I found was born in Germany, and they moved to Fayette, New York sometime around 1810. There they were active in the German Reformed Church. He was a farmer in Fayette, but from 1819, he was also one of the town's path masters, which I think had something to do with the road maintenance in the area. And then in 1826 and 1827, he was elected as highway overseer. He was described by the people in Fayette as, quote, a worthy and industrious citizen, end quote, and also, quote, as a hardworking, God-fearing man, a strict Presbyterian who brought up his children with rigid sectarian discipline. Close quote. P. 
Peter and Mary had eight children, seven of which lived to adulthood. And this I found remarkable. All of their sons, their son-in-law Hiram Page, and their future son-in-law Oliver Cowdery, so all of their male children and all of their sons-in-law served as special witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And Mary herself was a witness to the plates, which we'll also discuss today. Okay, so section 14 addressed to David Whitmer. David Whitmer was the third oldest child in the Whitmer family, and he and Joseph Smith were friends or acquaintances before Oliver ever went to Harmony. In fact, before Oliver does go to Harmony, he and David Whitmer have this discussion about the gold plates, and Oliver says, hey, I'm going to find out what's going on here, and I will keep in touch with you and let you know what I find out. And Oliver continued to correspond with David as he started to scribe for Joseph. In May of 1829, the translation in Harmony was very close to complete, but persecution there was increasing so much that Oliver wrote to David Whitmer and asked if David could come pick up Oliver, Joseph, and Emma from Harmony and take them back to stay in Fayette with the Whitmers. <laughs> Which, I mean, the persecution must have been real bad in my mind to ask for, for that. David Whitmer was about Joseph's age. He lived with his parents and he had responsibilities at the farm. So he was in a little bit of a dilemma when Oliver asked him this question. In an interview with Joseph F. Smith and Orson Pratt many years later, David recalled of this incident, quote, I did not know what to do. I was pressed with my work. I had some 20 acres to plow, so I concluded I would finish plowing and then go. I got up one morning to go to work as usual, and on going to the field, found between five and seven acres of my ground had been plowed during the night. I don't know who did it, but it was done just as I would have done it myself, and the plow was left standing in the furrow. Close quote. This miracle allowed him to go to Harmony to get Oliver and Joseph more quickly than he would have been otherwise able to, and it's been speculated in past years that that work was done by the three Nephites, but this isn't stated in any of the contemporary accounts that were given. Who knows who did it? Maybe it was the three Nephites. When David arrived at Harmony, Joseph and Oliver met David, quote, some distance from the house, close quote. And this is another story that I find so interesting because Oliver explained to David that Joseph, the whole time that David had been on the road, Joseph had been giving Oliver a play-by-play -play of when David had left Fayette, the locations of the places he'd stayed, the taverns he'd eaten at, and the time he'd arrive. And that's why they had been able to come out to meet him. David said, quote, this is why they had come out to meet me, all of which was exactly as Joseph had told Oliver, at which I was greatly astonished, close quote. Then we find in David's story another interesting tidbit. From the accounts I read, it sounds like Joseph was not carrying the plates with them in the wagon. It seems like the plates were delivered to a messenger and were transported by him, it, That a messenger being some kind of angelic being. Many years later in that same interview with Orson Pratt and Joseph F. Smith, David recalls an encounter they had on the road with the carrier of the plates. He says, Quote, when I was returning to Fayette with Joseph and Oliver, all of us riding in the wagon, Oliver and I on an old-fashioned wooden spring seat, and Joseph behind us, while traveling along in a clear, open place, a very pleasant, nice-looking old man suddenly appeared by the side of our wagon. 
and saluted us with, Good morning, it's very warm, at the same time wiping his face or forehead with his hand. We returned the salutation, and by a sign from Joseph, I invited him to ride if he was going our way. But he said very pleasantly, No, I am going to Camorra. This name was something new to me. I did not know what Camorra meant. We all gazed at him and at each other, and as I looked around inquiringly of Joseph, the old man instantly disappeared so that I did not see him again. He was, I should think, about five feet eight or nine inches tall and heavy set. He was dressed in a suit of brown woolen clothes. His hair and beard were white, like Brother Pratt's, but his beard was not so heavy. I also remember that he had on his back a sort of knapsack with something in, shaped like a book. It was the messenger who had the plates, who had taken them from Joseph just prior to our starting from Harmony. Close quote. There's some mention in accounts years later told by other descendants of this family that the messenger was Moroni, but as far as I've been able to tell, none of the eyewitnesses referred to him this way. This certainly doesn't align with the Moroni of most church art, right? This heavy set, five foot eight man. The truth is, we don't have a great description of Moroni by Joseph Smith, though. So this could be Moroni. But it does seem to me that if it had been Moroni, Joseph Smith would have recognized him and mentioned it to David Whitmer. I don't know. We don't know who this guy is, but he does seem to be an angelic messenger of some kind. Could be Moroni. During the entire month of June 1829, Joseph and Oliver were at the Whitmer home, and they worked on finishing the translation of the Book of Mormon. Most Book of Mormon scholars believe that during this time, Joseph and Oliver finished translating the writings of Mormon and Moroni. They finished translating the title page. The title page was found on, quote, the very last leaf on the left-hand side of the collection or book of the large plates, close quote. And then they began translating the small plates, which included the books of Nephi through the words of Mormon. And then, of course, Joseph received at least five revelations that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants during that month. In that same month, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses saw the plates, and Joseph, Oliver, and Martin Harris were working on securing a copyright for the Book of Mormon and finding a publisher. So they were really busy and probably exhausted. During this time, there was a hired girl working in the Whitmer house. Her name was Sally Conrad. Decades later, she was interviewed by a member of the church named Oliver Huntington. He reported, quote, I conversed with one old lady, 88 years old, who lived with David Whitmer when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were translating the Book of Mormon in the upper room of the house. And she, only a girl, saw them come down from the translating room several times when they looked so exceedingly white and strange that she inquired of Mrs. Whitmer the cause of their unusual appearance. Mrs. Whitmer was unwilling to tell the hired girl the true cause, as it was a sacred holy event connected with this holy sacred work, which was opposed and persecuted by nearly everyone who heard of it. The girl felt so strangely at seeing so strange and unusual appearance. She finally told Mrs. Whitmer that she would not stay with her until she knew the cause of the strange looks of these men. Sister Whitmer then told her what the men were doing in the room above, and that the power of God was so great in the room that they could hardly endure it. At times, angels were in the room in their glory, which nearly consumed them. Close quote. This picture of them being exhausted by revelation is a detail that I find so interesting, given 
the story I've often heard about the receiving of the Doctrine and Covenants, Section 76. In that situation, it was Joseph Smith and uh, Sidney Rigdon receiving revelation. And according to eyewitness Philo Dibble, quote, Joseph sat firmly and calmly all the time in the midst of a magnificent glory, but Sidney sat limp and pale, apparently as limber as a rag, observing which Joseph remarked smilingly, Sidney is not as used to it as I am, close quote. So I just think that's funny. It must have taken a lot of revelation for Joseph to get as used to the process as he did. Anyway, having so many extra people in this small one and a half story home must have been quite the burden for Mary Whitmer. And probably prior to Mary's understanding about the significance of the work being done in her home, she seems to have been a bit frustrated about all this extra work. An extended family member, Alvira Mills, explained the situation in this way. Quote, When Oliver's hand and Joseph's eyes grew tired, they went to the woods for a rest. There they often skated rocks on a pond. Mary Whitmer, with five grown sons and a husband to care for besides visitors, often grew tired. She thought they might just as well carry her a bucket of water or chop a bit of wood as to skate rocks on a pond. (laughs) She was about to order them out of her home. Close quote. I have to say that this is a feeling I am unfortunately very familiar with. This is another kind of Mary Martha situation, right? Sometimes it feels like we are judgmental of the work other people are doing and we want help with the work that we're doing. But in this situation, Mary Whitmer is rewarded for her hard work. Her son, again, David Whitmer, describes to Joseph F. Smith what happened next. My mother was going to milk the cows when she was met out near the yard by the same old man that we saw on the way to Fayette, judging by her description of him, who said to her, You've been very faithful and diligent in your labors, but you're tired because of the increase in your toil. It is proper, therefore, that you should receive a witness that your faith may be strengthened. Thereupon he showed her the plates. My father and mother had a large family of their own. The addition to it, therefore, of Joseph, his wife, Emma, and Oliver very greatly increased the toil and anxiety of my mother. And although she had never complained, she had sometimes felt that her labor was too much, or at least she was perhaps beginning to feel so. The circumstance, however, completely removed all such feelings and nerved her up for her increased responsibilities. Close quote. So, Those are the circumstances that surrounded the revelation of sections 14, 15, 16, and 17 as they were received in June of 1829. Section 14 instructs David Whitmer in his duty to stand as a witness and to assist in bringing forth the fullness of the gospel. And we'll talk a little more about how he did that when we discuss section 17. Sections 15 and 16 are addressed to John and Peter Whitmer, Jr., These sections are identical except for the changing of their names. And I think that's so interesting given the content of the revelation, because in verse three, the Lord says, quote, and I will tell you that which no man knoweth, save me and thee alone. For many times you've desired of me to know that which would be of the most worth to you, close quote. And then the Lord proceeds to say that bringing souls to God will be of the greatest worth. And apparently they both had the same question and didn't tell each other because we have the exact same revelation twice. This makes me think about what Joseph must have thought as he was receiving the revelations. Presuming that you believe that Joseph actually was receiving revelation, and I do, it must have been strange 
to get the same message for two different people. I wonder if he ever had doubts about whether he did it wrong. I feel the same way about uh, men who give priesthood blessings, whether they ever wonder about the blessings that they give. And this reminds me of an incident that happened to me in college. I, I don't know if any of you ever had this experience in college, but somewhere in my third year, I felt really lost. I wasn't sure what I was doing at school or if I was studying the subject I was meant to be studying or if I was where I was supposed to be. I had probably also had a recent breakup and I kept getting the impression to study my patriarchal blessing. I kept dismissing that idea as a figment of my imagination. I received my patriarchal blessing fairly young and I was convinced I knew it inside and out. And I'm also ashamed to admit that at a young age I had compared my blessing to a friend's, and they seemed so similar that I just wasn't sure it was specific to me. Plus, I felt like I needed more specific guidance at that particular time. So I asked my home teachers, they were also fellow students in my singles ward, to give me a blessing. I didn't really know them particularly well, but I did feel comfortable asking them. They showed up that week in suits and ties. They asked me to choose one of them to be voice. I chose at random, and after laying their hands on my head, and beginning the blessing, there was a very long pause. And then the brother acting his voice said, the Lord has no further direction to give you at this time. You have been given impressions. Follow those. He ended the blessing and I burst into tears. Then my home teacher sat down for a minute and to me, they seemed kind of deflated and confused. And maybe they thought that I was crying in disappointment. The home teacher who had not acted as voice said that he had accompanied the other in giving many blessings and never heard him give a blessing like that, but implied that he still believed that it was inspired. They asked me if I was okay. I could only nod and cry. They left, and I still don't know if they worried about that blessing, because what had happened in that blessing for me was that the Lord had confirmed to me in a way that no one could have known that he already was talking to me. It was through that blessing, which may have seemed, I don't know, cold or distant to my home teachers, that I actually realized how much my Heavenly Father loves me and is aware of me. And it was because of that blessing that I really studied my patriarchal blessing in a meaningful way and uncovered some of the most valuable insights into the way Heavenly Father speaks to me. This is my opinion, so please take it that way, but... I think it's important that as we read these sections that are addressed to individuals, to remember that they're, again, essentially blessings to individuals. We can't understand all the circumstances surrounding the revelations that were given at that time. But the fact that sections 15 and 16 were identical doesn't seem to bother Peter or John. It seems to have been exactly what they needed to be planted firmly in the cause. I think for the same reason we need to be careful about applying every word of these revelations to ourselves, just as we wouldn't necessarily apply someone else's priesthood blessing to us. Okay, let's get into the final chapter, section 17. This revelation came about when Joseph asked for further insight about the three witnesses that had been hinted at in other sections. He seemed to have asked specifically if David, Oliver, and Martin could be the witnesses. And according to Joseph himself, he recalled that Cowdery, Whitmer, and Harris, quote, became so very solicitous and teased me so much that at length I complied and through the Urim and Thummim I obtained of the Lord for them, close quote. In this section, the Lord reiterates the responsibility of the witnesses. Quote, 
Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which were given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face and the miraculous directors, which were given to Lehi while in the wilderness on the borders of the Red Sea. And it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them, even by that faith which was had by the prophets of old. And after that you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them by the power of God. Close quote. According to David Whitmer, that is exactly what happened. He explained in one interview, quote, In June 1829, when I saw the angel by the power of God, Joseph Oliver and I were alone, and a light from heaven shone round us, and solemnity pervaded our minds. The angel appeared in the light as near as that young man, and the note in the interview says within five or six feet. Between us and the angel there appeared a table, and there lay upon it the sword of Laban, the ball of directors, the record, and interpreters. The angel took the record and turned the leaves and showed it to us by the power of God. My testimony in the Book of Mormon is true. I can't deviate from it. Close quote. I have read a lot of stuff this week. It's difficult for me to plan these podcasts because there's always more to read. I want to make sure that I get a really broad view of a lot of the things that happened so I can give as more the, the most accurate interpretation that I can. So I've read interviews in old publications. I've read the pamphlet that David Whitmer published himself. I've read dozens of excerpts of interviews he gave. I've read um, the original old newspapers. It is remarkable how frequently and how consistently David Whitmer testified of the Book of Mormon of the angel and of the other items he saw. He gave over 70 interviews that we have documentation of. He himself said, quote, I have been visited by thousands of people, believers and unbelievers, men and ladies of all degrees, sometimes as many as 15 in one day and never failed in my testimony. And they will know someday that my testimony is true. I heard the voice of the angel just as stated in said book, and the engravings on the plates were shown to us, and we were commanded to bear record of them. And if they are not true, then there is no truth. And if there is no truth, there is no God. If there is no God, then there is no existence. But there is a God, and I know it. Close quote. He testified so often and so powerfully that the local newspaper wrote of him, quote, Skeptics may laugh and scoff if they will, but no man can listen to Mr. Whitmer as he talks of his interview with the angel of the Lord without being most forcibly convinced that he has heard an honest man tell what he honestly believes to be true. I imagine it must have been difficult for a non-believer to know David Whitmer, hear him witness, and reconcile their knowledge of Whitmer with their own logic and feelings. It seems like there were times that reporters seemed to misunderstand him, and as a result of that, subsequent interviewers said he was super careful and cautious in the way he said things so that he could not be misunderstood. He often directly refuted reports he felt mischaracterized him. In a pamphlet he wrote in 1888, he said, quote, It is recorded in the American Cyclopedia and the Encyclopedia Britannica that I, David Whitmer, have denied my testimony as one of the three witnesses to the divinity of the Book of Mormon, and that the other two witnesses, Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, denied their testimony to that book. 
I will say once more to all mankind that I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof. I also testify to the world that neither Oliver Cowdery nor Martin Harris at any time denied their testimony. They both died affirming the truth of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Close quote. As I've studied David Whitmer, I have developed this deep love for him as I've always had for Oliver Cowdery. David Whitmer withdrew from the church in 1837 at about the same time as his brother-in-law, Oliver Cowdery. As I mentioned in the episode on Oliver, David also felt that there were men scheming for his position on the church that caused him to be pushed out. Like Oliver, Whitmer was also driven out of his home by the saints shortly following his excommunication. But unlike both Martin and Oliver, David Whitmer never returned to the church. He came up with lots of reasons for this. David Whitmer's biggest misgiving was with polygamy, but he had other concerns about Joseph's, I don't know, continued um, revelatory worthiness, I guess you could say. He felt that the Lord had never intended for the church to be governed by one man at its head. He was asked to join many different movements, and he participated in some of them for a while and eventually rejected them all, but continued to believe in the Book of Mormon and testify of the Book of Mormon in the Bible until his death. He continued to be very kind to anyone who would come and ask him for an interview on the topic of the Book of Mormon. He was asked by strangers, but also by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who, again, he continued to be very kind to in spite of his deep uh, disagreements with them about polygamy and other issues. I really love, actually, this interview that I've been reading excerpts of between um, David Whitmer, Orson Pratt, and Joseph F. Smith. Orson Pratt and Joseph F. Smith became leaders in the church later on, and when they went to interview David Whitmer, they discussed with him the possibility of acquiring the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Remember, that's that copy that Oliver Cowdery had made of the original. Now, only 28% of the original Book of Mormon manuscript survives because Joseph placed that manuscript in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo house. Some 40 years later, the manuscript was uncovered, but water had seeped into the building stonework, and so most of it was not preserved. So the printer's manuscript is the closest thing that we have to the original, and David Whitmer had it because Oliver Cowdery left it to him when he died. And the church wanted that printer's manuscript, and they offered uh, David Whitmer some money, as I understand, and David Whitmer would not part with it. He explained that he had kept it safe for a long time. He had even kept it safe through a typhoon that had destroyed his home. The uh, room that contained the Book of Mormon manuscript had been very well preserved compared to the rest of the house. His family actually had to move into a tent, but the Book of Mormon manuscript was safe. And uh, he, he, again, wouldn't part with, with the book. So he eventually left the manuscript with his grandson, who sold it to the Re uh, Reformed uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and in 1903. And then uh, I think it was 2017 that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints purchased the manuscript from the Reformed Church. Anyway, so in addition to this great testimony that David Whitmer bears of the Book of Mormon, we also owe to him the preservation, at least 
in part to him, the preservation of the printer's manuscript. All right, so wrapping up, I just want to go back to Doctrine and Covenants 17 and recap what it is that the Lord is asking of the three witnesses. So the Lord tells them all the things he'll show them, and then he says, After you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them. After he gives the three witnesses that charge, he says in verse 8, If you do these last commandments of mine, which I have given you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, for my grace is sufficient for you, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. Close quote. Sometimes I feel like we as members of the church can be or have been judgmental of these early witnesses and other early members of the church who left for various reasons and who then sometimes were very critical of the church or its leaders. And I think it's really important that we, in our judgments of them, remember that phrase, my grace is sufficient for you. Based on my research, I feel like they beautifully and masterfully fulfilled their charge to testify of the Book of Mormon. And I hope that God's grace is sufficient for them. I hope that they will be lifted up at the last day for the sacrifices that they continued to make. And the real truth is, I hope His grace is sufficient for them because I need it for me too. Thanks so much for joining me today in a discussion of sections 14 through 17. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love for you to leave a review. It does really help. And of course, if you have any questions about the sources for today's podcast, you can check out my show notes. See you next week.